Good evening. We thank you for coming to Goucher College for our seventh annual Constitution Day event. I'm Sanford Unger, president of the college. And uh, in, in 2004, sorry, Constitution Day was mandated by Congress, a bill promoted by the late Senator Robert Byrd, to require every educational institution in the United States that receives federal funds to observe the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution, which was on September 17th, 1787. And we're pretty close this year, the 19th, not bad. Um, and we, we try really every year to identify a theme and a speaker of uh, broad general interest. We've had former Senator Paul Sarbanes, uh, Senator Ben Cardin, uh, Mary Kane when she was Maryland Secretary of State, State Senators Jamie Raskin and Richard, Ma Richard Madalino, both from Montgomery County, and then uh, William Murphy, who has represented some of the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. So we're especially pleased tonight to welcome David Ferriero, who is the archivist of the United States, only the 10th archivist of the United States, a job that he took on in 2009. He, is, he oversees the operations of the National Archives and Records Administration. And that's always been an important job, but it's especially important now that President Obama has asked that uh, government be made more transparent and that the way that documents created by the federal government are classified and declassified be reformed. And that's been a principal task of David Ferriero. Um, the, uh, uh, one of the main innovations since he arrived in this office is the launching of the new National Declassification Center, which is charged with streamlining declassification processes, facilitating, qu facilitating quality assurance measures, and implementing standard training for declassification reviewers. There is a wild and crazy network of laws and regulations that keep things classified, and this is really um, quite a job, which I think that uh, David Ferrier will tell us a little bit about. He is, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not, the first actual librarian to serve as the archivist of the United States. This has usually been a job reserved for, uh, well, let's say, political appointees. Um, <laughs> He began his career as a librarian at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he spent 31 years leaving as Associate Director of Public Services in 1996 to become the University Librarian and Vice Provost for Library Services at Duke University in North Carolina. And then in 2004, David became the Andrew W. Mellon Director of the New York Public Libraries, and he was part of the leadership team that integrated four research libraries 87 branch libraries, creating the largest public library system in the United States and one of the largest research libraries in the world. He earned his bachelor's and master's degree in English literature from Northeastern University in Boston and a master's degree in library and information science from Simmons College. David served as a Navy hospital corpsman with distinction in Vietnam. He was with a Marine unit in Da Nang and then on a hospital ship, the USS Sanctuary. His uh, talk today will be about secrecy and democracy. And then, of course, after his remarks, uh, we will follow our standard procedure where he will take questions and priority will be given to students of Goucher College to uh, ask those questions. Before we begin, I just want to thank Nancy Magnuson, the magnificent Goucher College librarian, and Tola, Tara Olivero, our special collections librarian, and the Brooke and Carol Pierce Center for Undergraduate Research and Special Collections who helped make this evening's program possible. Please join me in welcoming David Ferriero, Archivist of the United States, as our Constitution Day speaker. Thank you, Sandy, and good evening. And thanks for the invitation to come to campus. Having spent most of my life on college campuses, it's nice to be back among students and faculty. And the great unsung members of the campus, the staff of the, of the college, especially the librarians, it's nice to be among you. <laughs> you all know Sandy as your president and as a scholar. 
Um, I know him as a member of the National Archives Public Interest Declassification Board. The board is an advisory committee established by Congress to accomplish a number of activities related to classification of government information. Specifically, PIDB, as we call it, advises the President of the United States and other executive branch offices on the systematic, thorough, coordinated, and comprehensive identification collection, review for declassification, and release of declassified records and materials that are of archival value, including records and materials of extraordinary public interest. One of the things that I've come to admire about your president is that while he is a very perceptive critic of government policy, he works just as hard at being part of the solution. And he's done that both from outside and within. Tonight's complex theme of secrecy and democracy could and is the topic of semester-long seminars, the thrust of many tomes in your own library, and could keep me in front of you for hours. So I have chosen to narrow my remarks to the two lenses through which I view most things these days, releasing what we can and protecting what we must. For most of human history, determining where to draw the secrecy open, openness line was not hard. In fact, governments didn't even need to think about it. For centuries, the prevailing attitude could be summed up in the words attributed to Cardinal Richelieu. Secrecy is the first essential in the affairs of state. With the rise of democracy, of course, attitudes began to change dramatically. Jeremy Bentham, the 18th century English philosopher, put it this way, secrecy being an instrument of conspiracy ought never to be the system of regular government. In our day, the question of how a democracy should balance secrecy and openness has been complicated by the need to defend against threats to our natural, national security, something that has been talked about a lot this month, 10 years after the 9-11 attacks. Here's what one president said about defending the nation. He said that, that national security imposes, quote, two requirements that may seem almost contradictory in tone, but which may be reconciled and fulfilled. The greater need for far greater public information and the need for far greater official security. What president said that? George Bush? President Obama? Actually, it was John Kennedy, almost 50 years ago, in an address at the height of the Cold War. The age of that quote highlights the fact that as a democracy, we've been struggling with the tension between secrecy and openness for a long time. In fact, on this Constitution Day celebration, it's fair to say that Americans have been arguing about where to draw the secrecy line almost from the day we ratified that document. Critics of secrecy policy point to cases where government clearly seems to have gone too far. Earlier this year, for example, President Unger wrote about, the CIA, about how, how the CIA was resisting efforts to declassify what are believed to be the six oldest classified documents held by the National Archives. 1917 and 1918 memoranda describing ways Imperial Germany made and detected the secret ink it used for espionage during World War I. <laughs> At the same time, defenders of government secrecy can find examples where secrecy seemed absolutely necessary. The Allies won World War II in part because we kept secret the fact that we could decipher the German and Japanese codes. When the spy Aldrich James revealed to the Soviets the names of American secret agents, people died. And just this year, the successful attack on bin Laden depended on secrecy. In short, in a democracy, drawing the line on secrecy is like telling a friend when he's had too much to drink. Necessary, but not easy. So what are we doing about, this, about the openness side of the equation? As you know, when a government agency wants to keep a document secret, it gives that document a designation, a classification, ranging from secret or top secret all the way up to code word for the most sensitive material. One of the most important offices within the National Archives is our Information Security Oversight Office, or ISU. ISU is responsible to the President of the United States for policy and oversight of the government-wide security classification system and the National Industry Security Program. There are currently more than 2,400 
2,400 different classification guides in use within the government. That's down from 9,600 that existed not that many years ago. That's just one of the flies in the ointment. The Public Interest Declassification Board, which I referred to earlier, which Sandy sits on, has been doing some important work, especially in the past six months, to engage the public in a conversation about secrecy. They launched a blog in March and posted eight draft white papers with recommendations on how to transform the classification and declassification system. In addition, the board developed recommendations which include using technology to automate and streamline the declassification process, creating a comprehensive metadata strategy for classified records, ending the concept of agency ownership of historical records, ensuring that the classified records of Congress are systematically reviewed, and designing a new access system for the electronic environment. So how many classified documents are there? Well, there are about 400 million pages of material going back to World War I, with more being produced every year. 400 million, that's 23 miles of pages, stacked one on top of the other, about the distance from here to the BWI airport. And where are they? Most belong to the National Archives. Let me explain. Although we're not classified, in some ways the National Archives is the best kept secret in Washington. No, we're not part of the Library of Congress. No, we're not part of the Smithsonian. We're an independent federal agency created in 1934, and our mission has remained the same ever since. We preserve and make available records that are created by the United States government. That is, we preserve all presidential documents, and we preserve two to three percent of all records created by the United States government, those that are important for legal or historical reasons. That may not sound like very much, but we now hold approximately 12 billion sheets of paper, 5.3 billion electronic records, 18 million maps, charts, and architectural drawings, miles and miles of sound and video, and 40 million photographs. In our collection, you'll find the most important documents in our history, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And in those holdings can be found those 400 million classified pages I mentioned. But we're not just storing them, far from it. In late 2009, at the direction of the President, as Sandy mentioned, we established the National Declassification Center within the National Archives. Its job is to process all those 400 million pages by December 31st, 2013, declassifying as many as possible. The executive order clearly spells out the only two reasons a document may keep its classification status, weapons of mass destruction or national security. To process the documents, the NDC first goes to the agency that produced a document and has them review it for sensitive information. That's important because in many cases that kind of a thorough review needed was done when the document was drafted. The reason government officials preparing memos or cables are often under tremendous pressure from their bosses to get the job done quickly when they have to choose between taking the time to produce their analysis or review the classification regulations, they may simply stamp a document secret to make their deadlines and solve the policy problems. After the agency does a review, recommending what can be released and what should be held back, we review what they've done. Just to complicate things, in many cases it turns out a single, single document contains classified information drawn from several agencies. Each one of these agencies may have, may have its own standards for classifying and declassifying documents and has to be consulted. We tried to speed things up by having representatives of all the agencies on location at our facility in College Park where this work is done. In addition, we're working to establish efficient business processes to streamline declassification. One example is the fact, as I said, that there are so many different classification guides in operation within the federal government. We're trying to reduce that number in order to make the guides more consistent. We're also very involved in requests for documents under the Freedom of Information Act. In fact, our Office of Government Information Services 
oversees the enforcement of FOIA and has earned the nickname FOIA Ombudsman. Its job is to resolve disputes between requesters and agencies under FOIA. And much of its energy is aimed at resolving disputes informally. So how are we doing? Of the more than 400 million pages in the backlog, 130 million have, been, have passed the quality review process, the crucial first stage of declassification. Of the 21.3 million pages that have been fully reviewed, we're very proud that 93% were declassified and put on open access to researchers, 93%. And I believe the best is yet to come. Most of the pro records processed to date deal with World War II, Korea, and the Vietnam War. These records were created at a time when officials were not very concerned about eventually releasing secret documents. That attitude started to change in the 1980s. In recent decades, agencies have generally applied classification guidelines a bit more conscientiously, and they've been performing more consistent reviews for declassification and release. That means we should be able to process newer documents more quickly. And remember those six oldest documents on invisible ink, the CIA finally caved. <laughs> because the formulas have been published in a 1931 book. <laughs> so thanks to Google Books for providing a new tool for us to pressure those agencies to release the classified documents. Still at the end of the day, some records are kept from the public. At the National Archives, we have to answer the question I started with, where do you draw the line every day? We start with an ideal that was embedded in our mission. Thomas Jefferson wrote, whenever the people are well informed, they can be trusted with their own government. Whenever things get so far wrong, they may be relied on to set them right. At the Archives, the work we do is rooted in this belief that citizens have the right to see examine and learn from the records that guarantee citizens' rights, that document government's actions, and that tell the story of our nation. President Obama has made it clear that this ideal should also be part of the mission of all government agencies. Here's how he put it when he issued the Open Government Directive. My administration is committed to creating an unprecedented level of openness in government. Openness will strengthen our democracy and pro promote efficiency and effectiveness in government. I believe the archive's historic commitment to openness is reflected in our decisions on where to draw the line and strike the right balance on secrecy. We're working hard so that only information that requires protection is classified, information that would complicate our relations with other nations, put people in danger, and harm our national defenses. In taking it a bit further, we try to ensure that such information is classified only for as long as is necessary. In striking that balance, in making decisions, we're certainly going to draw criticism. President Unger has even been known to weigh in now and then. Criticism is unavoidable, but we work equally hard to make our decisions in an open way, collaborating with the users of the records we keep, the American public. The Public Interest Declassification Board on which Sandy sits is a vital part of that effort. Let me conclude with a very recent example of the role the archives can play in helping to get vital information out to the public. Even those of you here tonight old enough to remember the Watergate scandal might need to be reminded that after he left office in 1974 and after he was pardoned by President Ford, President Nixon gave 11 hours of testimony to a Watergate grand jury. While the pardon meant the former president could not be prosecuted for conduct related to the Watergate break-in, he could have been indicted on perjury char charges if he lied to that grand jury. So many historians believe Nixon told the truth and he did testify without aides or handlers. As you might imagine, historians have been waiting for 35 years to read the 300-page transcript which has been kept sealed. The American Historical Association filed suit in federal court asking to have the records open to the public. The Obama Justice Department had opposed unsealing the records based on privacy concerns for those named in the testimony and their families. In the end, the judge ordered that the transcripts be released. In explaining his decision, he said, 
quote, the special circumstances presented here, namely undisputed historical interest in the requested records, far outweigh the need to maintain the secrecy of the records. And he added, in the event that the requested records are unsealed, the National Archives and Records Administration would review the testimony and its associated materials for privacy concerns. In short, the, trust, the judge trusted our ability to strike the right balance on secrecy. That trust gave the, public, gave the public access to important information about the democratic process. In conclusion, let me say that I look forward to continuing this discussion about the complex relationship between secrecy and democracy with you this evening. And I'm sure you'll be debating where to draw the line on secrecy in your classes and on other events on campus and outside it. As you consider these issues, I hope you'll keep in mind the words of a member of the Goucher College family, H.L. Mencken, the husband of a professor of English here in the 1930s, who said, there is always a well-known solution to every human problem, neat, plausible, and wrong. The relationship between democracy and secrecy will remain messy, complicated, and challenging. At the National Archives, our declassification center has a slogan, releasing all we can, protecting what we must. These are words our entire agency works to live up to as we draw lines and strike a balance between secrecy and openness. Thank you. So I don't know if we have a floor microphone, but I think people can be heard in this room pretty well. Uh, questions, comments? Goucher students first. Jeff. You might want to set usual, say who you are, where you're from. First question. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I'm surprised at the number of audiences that I talk to that it takes until the very end of the Q&A to get to, to WikiLeaks when, for me, it's the number one thing on my mind. Um, first of all, let me just give you a little context. Um, the system, the State Department system, which um, the message was, were leaked from, is from a secure, classified system, which 649,000 people have access to. Okay? <laughs> so that's number one problem. How can you possibly guarantee security when 649,000 people have access to it? There have been, as you might expect, um, lots, uh, there has been lots of finger pointing ever since then about whose problem this was and what it has done is to identify a real hole in cybersecurity that exists um, within the, the government. And it's caused a, a fairly high level of conversation about how to ensure that this doesn't happen again. My con and we're at the table. The ISU staff that I just talked about are at the table during these conversations. My greatest concern and what I'm fighting most to ensure is that this does not um, force us to take steps backwards in terms of openness to, to information. That this can't be used as an excuse to lock down access to, to information. And that's a, that's a fight that I will continue to, to fight for. Let me just tell you anecdotally, at the same time that the first WikiLeaks were released, and I was reading them in the New York Times, I had the opportunity to visit our State Department records in College Park, and I was looking at diplomatic cables from Moscow pre-World um, War I, reading the snarkiness of those diplomatic cables, which just mirrored exactly what was, what was going on in the, in the WikiLeaks. And I was saying to myself, boy, Things have not changed much. <laughs> Hi, my name is Heather Fell. I'm a senior at Goucher, and I worked right now, I just started working at the archives for the theater department. Great. And I was wondering how likely would it be to be able to, to do that as a, not as a career, but to 
further by learning with that even without a master in library science. Mm -hmm. Yikes. Yeah. Um, for me, experience is much more valuable. I shouldn't say this at an academic institution. No. <laughs> Let's start again. Okay, let me, let me read that. Yikes. Um, in, in, both, in both libraries and in archives, there are opportunities for um, employment and advancement for those who don't necessarily have the credential in library science or archival practice. Mm -hmm. And one thing, I actually downloaded files from the National Archives. Yes. I've downloaded the Hollywood Blacklist Yeah. I'm, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, nothing immediately jumps to mind, but um, let me think about that. And they come from two um, incredible theater collections, you know, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, tremendous um, theater collection, um, and now the National Archives, so let me think about it. Nothing, nothing immediately. So you may have, um, you know, some groundbreaking worker. <laughs> we have fantastic records, let me tell you. You know, I've, we have 44 facilities around the country from Anchorage, Alaska to Atlanta, Georgia, and I have been to 39 of them so far. And at every one of them, uh, it's just jaw-dropping the kind of stuff that we have. I was in Anchorage, Alaska last week. Gold dust. We have gold dust in the records. <laughs> it's grown in value. Yes. <laughs> yes. Part of the uh, responsibility for the National Declassification Center is to streamline the classification process. And the work that Sandy's advisory group is doing is um, also dealing with the over-classification issue and also reducing the number of classification guides. So all of those activities should um, result in uh, a future with less classification and a speedier um, time frame during which the material is classified. <clears throat> David, let me just follow up here that we've talked a lot uh, on the Public Interest Declassification Board about the possibilities for an electronic yeah. system of declassification using so-called context accumulation so that we or the competent people would teach computers to understand what needs to be kept secret and what does not. Do you do you put a lot of stock in that, or are we just... I uh, certainly do. <laughs> this, the, the, one of the ironies is that uh, one of the big players in this is the CIA, which you would expect to be you know, the, the enemy of um, open access. But they have developed a system that looks um, really pretty powerful for to do just what, um, what Sandy has been talking about. I saw some other hands a moment ago. Yes? Most of them are. Mm -hmm. So I guess most of what you have then comes from various intelligence agencies. Uh, defense, defense agencies. Okay. <laughs> CIA. But Tim's looking for some. You're looking for sort of some categories, a description of some categories of, of classified documents. But they are mostly military. Right. So mostly relating to. Military operations. World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, right. Korea. Gabe. My name is Gabe. I'm from 
from uh, Jamesburg, Maryland, and I was just in, uh, wondering, do you find it interesting to read about the events that you, I guess, lived through through your life? But then find, like, I guess, secret backstory? <laughs> yeah, let me tell you, let me share with you an experience. Um, shortly after I started, I had my first meeting with the directors of the 13 presidential libraries. We were at the Carter Library in Atlanta. And they went around the room and introduced themselves, and Tom um, Putnam from the JFK reached into his briefcase and pulled out a facsimile of a letter that a kid uh, wrote to JFK asking for information about the proposed Peace Corps. And it was a letter from me. Which was absolutely stunning, but more stunning was to look at, to watch the faces of the other 12 directors because they were like, oh my God, how am I going to top this? <laughs> two weeks later, the Eisenhower called to say they'd found two letters from me to President Eisenhower. <laughs> and uh, shortly after that, I was at the LBJ and they handed me a copy of a letter. Why weren't you doing and your I, homework? I, I obviously had no life. I had written a letter to LBJ congratulating him for signing the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> those, all of those letters are now hanging outside my office because when I do tours, especially with kids, I point this out to them. And it's a great example of what the archives is all about. We collect, but more importantly, we can find. <laughs> That's amazing. Records, yeah. The Eisenhower one is really great because um, when they sent me the copy of the letter, they also sent me a copy of the letter that Sherman Adams from the Eisenhower White House uh, sent me, thanking me for the kind letter to the president and the pet elephant I sent. <laughs> so I obviously sent some kind of a toy or something. So uh, I, I don't you know, think uh, many of the people here don't know the significance of the name of Sherman Adams. He was. Uh, Corrupted <laughs> by a gift. That's not, right. not the elephant. No, not the elephant. <laughs> I believe it was a vicuña coat. That's right. That's right. So we, we collect artifacts too, so I immediately called the Eisenhower to say, okay, so do you have my elephant? <laughs> and I was told um, the president usually gave those kinds of gifts to his grandchildren. So a couple of months ago, David was at the archives. <laughs> And I told him this story, and I said, so David, where's my elephant? <laughs> and he said, my sister Susan probably has it. Mo. The, um, the, the director of establishing the National uh, Declassification Center gives me the authority to um, negotiate with the agencies. So I, I can, um, in a situation where they can't come to a resolution, I can force it. Hasn't happened yet. Oh, sorry. Hadley. <laughs> It is um, the the challenge really is capturing what's being created um, rather than um, this balance between opening and closing. Um, the fact that more and more agencies are now in an electronic environment where they're creating uh, electronic records and um, the ability for me to be involved at the creation of the records to ensure that they're being created in a manner in which they'll be able to be transferred to us at the appropriate time. So my greatest um, challenge right now, we've done a, um, two, two self-assessments from the agencies, 275 federal agencies, about where they are in terms of their level of comfort around where they are with electronic records. 95% of them have 
self-identified as being to moderate and high risk around electronic records. So we have an enormous task ahead of us in terms of getting into those agencies and providing the guidance they need to ensure that they're creating them in such a way that they're going to be available in perpetuity, um, especially since the Federal Records Act, which now governs that whole side of my operation, has yet to recognize electronic records in the legislation. What was that number of the Bush, George W. Bush administration electronic records that you're saving? 240 million email messages. For the Clinton White House, it was 20 million. So that gives you some sense of where we're headed. Jackson. Hi, um, my name is Jackson. I'm a senior at Gastro from New York. And um, <clears throat> this may be similar to Mosin's question, or at least related, but of course a lot of documents that are declassified now have historical value, but also severe political ramifications. And I'm one, one particular that comes to mind is the secrecy surrounding the Iran-Contra affair. Um, and I'm wondering that, it, do you find uh, support or resistance for declassification along yes. party yes. boundaries? Yes, yes. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> how, how do you, in, in, in your position as the archivist, deal with those kinds of, of both ethical and, and political dilemmas? The archives, the National Archives is a nonpartisan agency. It has to be, because we serve both both sides of the aisle. Um, we serve, you know, Republicans and Democrats, and um, uh, we have to come down on the side of what's right for the American public. It's the, um, a, a very good example of it was what we went through recently in redesigning the Watergate exhibit at the Nixon Library, which was, you know, very difficult for the folks at the Nixon Foundation because we had access to records that had been opened since the library opened, which gave us new documentation, new information with which to tell the story, which had really never been told before. And, you know, there, you know, there are people who are still not happy with that, as you might have read in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Christy. Uh, this seems to be a broke question. <laughs> right. I neglected this side, sorry. Um, Thank you for asking that question. You know, I spent, um, as you heard, I spent uh, almost 40 years in academic research libraries. And going to the New York Public Library was my first um, real opportunity to work in public libraries. So I arrived with an attitude. Um, I was uh, hired, actually, I was recruited to be the director of the four research libraries. And when I arrived, and they hired um, a, a woman from Los Angeles to be the director of the branch libraries, the 87 branches. And uh, we arrived on the same day, and um, I took a look at the map of the branches. The New York Public Library is three boroughs, Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island. Um, and I took a look at the map of the 87 branches, and I said to my colleague, I said, this is worse than Starbucks. <laughs> We've got a library in every corner here. We don't need all these libraries. Boy, was I wrong. Um, the public library, you know, I'm just talking about my experience in New York. New York is a city of neighborhoods. Every one of those branch libraries serves a very different clientele with very different needs. And in a time of uh, economic uh, recession, uh, the library is more important than ever to the lives of those individuals. The worst time to be cutting support. 50% of the population of New York City that we were serving, three million people, did not have internet connectivity at home. The only place they got it was the public library. They were out of work for the first time in many years. The only way you can get a job is an online application. They didn't know how to use computers. That's what we were doing. We were teaching them how to prepare a resume, how to do a job search, but more importantly, how to use the computer. So 
more and more important than ever. Yeah. We did a program at the National Archives not long ago with Laura Bush, and we talked a lot about the importance of supporting public libraries. David, I have a question that um, arises in the context of President Obama's declared policy of openness. And uh, as you know, he has brought more prosecutions under the Espionage Act of people for leaking uh, classified information or allegedly leaking classified information than any other president since World War II. And some people find this uh, a kind of disconnect that he would advocate openness and yet pursue people who, well, for their own reasons, thought that it was important to make information available. Now, I know this raises questions of whether their judgment should be accepted over the government's judgment, but how do you uh, assess this contrast? It is, um, the whole open government directive, as far as I'm concerned, is very much a work in progress. You know, there are, there are some real high points that I can uh, acknowledge that we've made it, and there are some low points where we still have a lot of work to do. Um, and when you read my memoir, after I'm out of, <laughs> you'll have some concrete examples where I've said, I have said, you know, you can't have it both ways. Uh, just, just to press this point, and I don't want to put you in an awkward position at all. Um, don't you think some of the leaks occur because of pressure within the system that so much is being kept secret, and there's so much of a? It's almost like a a pipe that bursts at, at various times because in this day and age, in in um, how much access there is to information, um, it's, it's just kind of ludicrous to think that you can preserve a level of secrecy. You know, and WikiLeaks is a great example of that. You know? So let's get over that and let's move on to a better way of protecting what we need what to. Needs to yeah, exactly. For whatever period of time it needs to be protected. Right. Take yes. I mean, it's like, it's like telling a secret to your best friend. Now, don't share this with anyone else. <laughs> We well, you know what the rule is in in. Uh, yeah. Well, what what confidentiality means in the academic setting is you only tell one person at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Employment at the National Archives or employment in general. <laughs> we have we have fantastic internship uh, opportunities at the National Archives, and one of the ways of, of seeing whether it's a good fit for you is to you know come and do some work uh, with us um, and get exposed to the kind of organization it is and the kind of work that we do. We're in the in the midst of a massive transformation of the agency. Um, a lot of new new uh, folks uh, have joined us. Uh, completely new organization is now in place. Um, we are we are transitioning from a very uh, kind of uh, not very agile organization um, to one that's much more responsive and uh, being out in front in terms of use of technology. And those of you who have been following us can see have seen some examples of our use of social media, and um, um, that's the kind of agency that we're trying to be, connecting people with the information they need. We have a 1950s kind of mentality around access to our records, uh, which we're turning upside down um, to make it much more user-friendly. So if that's what you're interested in, come and talk to me. Yes, Tara. Um, you brought up the point of a lot of the changes just now. With 
No, not at all. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I have um, 3,500 people in 44 facilities around the country. And as I've been going out meeting people, there is uh, a fair amount of anxiety uh, about change, but there's also a fair level ex of excitement uh, about the new way of looking at um, who we are and what we do, our, how we do our work. So there's, a, there's of course, been resistance. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of, you know, I went through this at the New York Public Library, and it's this um, phenomenon that lasts for a while about keep your head down and he'll go away. <laughs> and I've shared that with the staff. I said, you know, I'm not going away. Okay, on the first one, I would say in terms of mistakes, it would be um, what I can respond to is mistakes in the classification itself. You know, that, that documents are classified that should never have been classified to begin with. Yes, there are, I can point to examples of that. And the second one, we're responsible for White House um, and all federal agencies. The records of Congress so far don't fall into our purview, but um, I mentioned that uh, Sandy's board is looking at one of the recommendations that they've made is that we should have, there should be um, declassification uh, procedures should be developed around records of Congress also. There, it's a little harder to get at that. Um, yes, there was a question. We authorize the destruction based upon the record schedules which have been created by the agency and the archives. So as I said, 2 to 3% is of historic or legal value that comes to the archives, but everything else gets destroyed. Yeah, well, that's that was not authorized. Yes, yes, we do, and I can't talk about that because it's um, in process right now. <laughs> it is, it is, and as soon as CIA responds to my uh, request, then it will be open. Let me, talk, let me just describe another one that's more current that you probably read about, and that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has been, uh, for 20 years, it turns out, destroying unscheduled records. These are preliminary investigations. Um, go ahead. If there's PII in it, then the personal information, person, personally identifiable information, like social security numbers, we would redact that. Yes. Is it open to the public now? Is what open to the public? Oh, yes, yes, you may ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was my question. <laughs> State Department personnel. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. And military. Yeah. Government employees. Me? <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> a very small fraction. If you go to my blog, A Otis, um, you can click on my favorite documents uh, where I have, uh, you'll be able to see some scans of things that I have particularly resonated with me as I've been moving around the country looking at what we have. The check for $7.2 million with which we purchased Alaska, for instance, is there. A letter from Annie Oakley to President McKinley offering to raise a troop of 50 sharpshooter women who would supply their own rifles and ammunition to fight the Spanish-American War. <laughs> the um, uh, well, um, at both Duke University and the New York Public Library, fantastic Walt Whitman collections. Walt Whitman worked in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, a government employee. We have all civilian personnel records. When I arrived, I said, I'd like to see Walt Whitman's personnel file. And, and in it is a four-page letter of recommendation. He was applying for another job in government, written by Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> you know, it's, did he get uh, the job? He did not get the job. <laughs> And it's a, it's a classic, we've got to read this because it's a classic example of nice guy, great writer. I'm not sure he can work. <laughs> yeah. So I've read, you know, I've, I've seen a very small portion of the, of the records, but it, every day just blows me away. Yes. I would love, I, I would love to have all 12 billion records <laughs> scanned and available. Um, it's, a, it's a very expensive process, as you know. We have a lot of partnerships with some, some commercial entities to do um, a lot of it. Um, genealogists are a huge um, audience that we have, so Ancestry.com has done a lot of work with us. We've done some stuff on our own. Um, there's a, there are move, there's a movement underway to create something called the National Digital Public Library, which is a public-private partnership to create a, a basically a, a, an American culture digital site, which will have funding from private foundations and the government. I'm hoping that I'm representing the archives on that, hoping that we can use some of those resources to do that. But my goal is to get... I'm, you know, I'm convinced, uh, you know, I learned this at Duke University, if it ain't online, it doesn't exist. <laughs> so stop fighting it, and what can we do to get it online, you know? So uh, what, what would your response be if uh, Google offered to take over that entire role, like they have for the libraries? I, well, used to for the libraries, not anymore. Um, I spent five years working with Google at the New York Public Library. We were one of their original partners. Um, I would be very happy to work with Google if we could negotiate a license that gave me more control over the content than I had when I was at the New York Public Library. They had a seven-year lock on the content before we could do anything with it, and that's, that wasn't acceptable. Isn't acceptable. Hannah? It already has. I think. Oh yeah, I th definitely think it's valuable um, because it is a way of communicating with folks who are using social media anyway. 
one of the things I learned when I was at the New York Public Library that you, you, you can spend a lot of time creating a digital library, but unless people find you, it, you're wasting your time. So where are the people? And let's get our content where the people are. Okay, so YouTube, Flickr, you know, get your photographs onto Flickr. Don't expect people to find you. So using social media to uh, meet those people where they are. All the agencies now, the White House, are using social media to communicate with the general public. Those are records. So one of the first, before I started, I started in November of 2009. In September of 2009, I pick up the paper and read that the White House has let an RFP for advice on archiving their social media. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, but, excuse me, that's my agency. You're, you know, <laughs> we're supposed to be doing that. And what I discovered was we weren't using social media. I walk into the archives and discover, <coughs> am told secretly, whispered in my ear, there's a group of 25 people who are interested in social media who are meeting in secret <laughs> because they weren't authorized to meet. So I discovered their schedule and walked into their meeting. <laughs> and <laughs> And it was like they were busted. Uh, and we sat down for an hour and a half and talked about you know, what kinds of ideas they had. I sanctioned them. We now have a social media working group. We're responsible for advising the agencies on their use of technology, the records implications of their use of technologies. If we're not experimenting with the technologies, how can we possibly advise them? So we've kind of gone overboard on social media. We're all over the place. And it's very exciting. I mean, that's one of the things that the, the staff has really uh, latched onto is, is the variety of social media activities that we have going on. Yes, ma'am. With the documents that you have read, would you say that they would generally just enhance history as we know it, or are there groups of documents that are just going to turn history upside down? Every day, people are making discoveries in the documents that we didn't know we had. So I had a personal experience myself, um, a genealogy kind of experience, where I was had been searching for my, my father's parents came into the country from a little town outside of Naples. And I'd been searching for many years about their entering into them. The family would never talk about this. And I uh, was searching <laughs> records to see, you know, uh, every once in a while to see when they came in, and finally I discovered um, passenger lists uh, on Ancestry.com, as a matter of fact, from Boston, and found them. Um, my grandfather came in around 1903, age 15. And if you follow the, um, the passenger list information, a lot of information contained how much money they had in their pocket, who was meeting them, where they were going, blah, blah, blah. Who was meeting him? My grandfather. His father. Now, we always thought, we had always been told it was my grandfather who was the first one in the country. And here it was. My great-grandfather was the first one. He came in three years before. So it was a whole new, you know, new piece of information for me that I learned from the records in the National Archives. Every day people are, are doing things like that. Perhaps it was that your great-grandfather came illegally. <laughs> no, that was Uncle Tony. I know about him. I did have an Uncle Tony who did that. <laughs> This was this happened many years ago. This wasn't recent. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Within the last ten years, I think, right? Uh, before my time at the oh, New York Public Library. And in fact it disappeared. It's gone. It's not it's no longer there. Yeah. Yeah. If I had been there, it would not have been removed. Okay. Yeah. 
It's a it's a closed stack. I mean, it's not you know it's you know why why would you do that? Yeah. It's like the early Nancy Drews. Same thing. Yeah. Same problem. Of course, the New York Public Library wouldn't buy Nancy Drew. <laughs> I swear. Oh, well, yes, exactly. Okay. How about the Hardy Boys? Yeah. No. no. <laughs> It's a it's a problem with electronic information in general. It's the authenticity of the of the document. It's something that we worry a lot about in terms of uh, the records that are being created, whether it's social media records or traditional records. The ability for someone to get in there, hack it, and change the information. It's um, the security aspect of what we're creating in terms of the electronic records archive is um, one of our biggest challenges. Should, shouldn't there be some way to tag information so that you could trace where it, I guess not, you can't tag it so that you know where it came from? Where it came from? from? Mm. I don't know. Metadata. Well, yeah, well we do that anyway. Um, that's part of the, the wrapper around the, mm -hmm. the content itself. But ensuring that, it, that no one can break yeah. into it and change it. Yes, sir. Yeah. I don't know how an agency could get away with breaking the law for 20 years and no one being sanctioned. Mm -hmm. That kind of amazes me. Well, it's not over yet. Okay, well, that's good. Glad <laughs> <laughs> to hear that. And the other is, um, what about uh, a, member, a top member of the Clinton administration? Is he going to have documents in his underwear or something like that? Sock. sock. His sock. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> that was before my time. You're referring to the famous Sandy Berger case. Oh my God, that is uh, that is still, for those of you who don't know Sandy Berger, using, had access to, um, he was a member, a designated representative of the Clinton administration after the administration. So he had author, authorization to use the records of the administration. And he apparently was left alone in a skiff, a secure, facility in the National Archives and stuffed some documents into his sock and walked out and was caught. Right. Yeah. So violation number one. A little leaving, awkward. Leaving, <laughs> leaving anyone alone, I don't care who it is, even if it's the President of the United States, they don't get left alone. That's violation number one. So we've corrected that problem. And the, the first one was the SEC. Yeah. So this is, this is uh, an interesting um, kind of uh, developing story, which is under investigation by the Inspector General of the, um, of the SEC, and we're waiting for that report. What I know is that they were systematically, and this is a whistleblower who, um, you know, who identified it, they were systematically um, destroying preliminary investigation records unscheduled, they had not been scheduled by the National Archives, so we had no idea that they even existed, um, had been destroying them for at least 20 years. And we're talking about preliminary investigations, Bernie Madoff, for instance, you know, information like that. Do you think they're really just serious. trying to save you the problem of having too much to store? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yes. Um, in regards to uh, Obama's uh, wanting to be more transparent, is it of any concern to you or the archives on the whole that, I believe you said documents can be classified for two reasons weapons of mass destruction and uh, national security. security? Yeah. Well, in the 21st century, with the Not 
so 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 far our experience has been since 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 we've done as I said that 23 million has passed through complete review and 93 percent of it has been released. It has not it has not been an issue so far in what we've reviewed. They're now public. They belong to the government, and they are in the in um, starting with. Actually, um, Cheney's records are at the Bush Library, including his. Um, has anyone has anyone read the book? No. Come on. <laughs> There's a great, um, a great. What if we don't take your name? <laughs> There's a great story in there about his um, resignation letter that he prepared when he went in for surgery, you know, and so he um, he authorized us to release it. He gave us um, permission to release. It's wonderful. I'll give you a copy. The Dick Cheney's resignation letter. <laughs> Let's see. Um, yeah, Gore is at um, is at Clinton. I don't know. Um, I don't know what year it started. I know that there was trouble with um, Cheney at first because he wanted to take them with him. Um, <laughs> Anyone say to Dick Cheney, you can't take it with you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was told that they weren't his. So he grudgingly gave up his records. Yeah. David, then, we, we have a little something for you, but if you were just going to say something, I don't want to stop you. No, I, I just heard yesterday someone told me that um, um, Biden has given his records to Delaware. Thanks for reminding me, because I have to check to make sure he doesn't think he can give his vice presidential records to <laughs> Delaware. <laughs> they, they, must be, they must be very voluminous, especially the transcripts of his speeches. No comment. <laughs> I have a little something for you. I think there's something in there. Yellow paper. Ah, yes. <laughs> thank you very much, David Ferriero, and thank you all for coming tonight.